Hello, this is the MRC podcast number 38, coming to you from the Mentis Research Centre. Welcome to the Mentis Research Centre podcast. I'm Nick Cater. Our guest today, I like to think, has done more than anybody else I know to restore the good name and purpose of the discipline of sociology. He's a man who studies and thinks deeply about Western culture and the, the trends and, and brings some kind of order to our thoughts about where all this is going. Welcome, Frank Faridi. Hi, Nick. Frank, you're joining us, I think, from Italy today, from uh, Lake Como. That's right, in the epicentre of the coronavirus outbreak in Lombardy, yeah. We've got together to talk about your latest book, one of 20-something books you've written. But before we do that, let's just talk about the COVID-19 phenomena, perhaps we should call it, rather than crisis. How's things in Italy? I mean, that's that was very much the epicentre in Europe anyway. Well, as in many European places, you have a very differential reaction. So here in Lombardy, which was the place that was worst hit by the epidemic, people are now very relaxed. And although many, many people wear masks, other people don't. Uh, insofar as people wear masks, they, they, they mainly do it out of respect for other people. Uh, rather than because they necessarily think it's going to save anybody's lives or it's important for their health. But I think what is very interesting is that Italy overall has become a little bit paranoid to the point at which uh, a lot of hotels and businesses are cancelling meetings and reservations with people from Lombardy. So a lot of people from Lombardy had their hotel reservations cancelled when they tried to go on holiday. I talked to a couple who went down to Puglia and arrived at the hotel, and they were told, um, "Sorry, you can't, you know, sort of can't stay with us. Go away." So there's a kind of uh, uh, very risk-averse legacy to this, which is, is very unhelpful because it really does divide society and fragments all of us. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've thought about the issue of risk, risk, and our willingness to take risk. Um, and I must admit, I haven't had the courage to write about it because so many people are, are, are really anxious about COVID and, um, uh, you know, you don't want to tread on their sensitivities. But it does seem to me that, that a lot of uh, the things you've written about over the years, about the lack of appetite for risk, about um, the cotton wooling of, of, uh, of our children, for instance, being a, a manifestation of that, is coming to pass now. I mean, sure, there, there is a risk from COVID-19, but... I sometimes think we've, um, dare I say, exaggerated that risk and therefore taken, you know, extraordinary um, public health decisions which are going to be very costly in the long run. I think we have, and I, I think the biggest problem is that we've lost the, the value of discretion, allowing people to make judgment calls about their lives. So, you know, it seems to me that it's, it's necessary to take sensible precautions, especially if you're elderly, if you're ill. The way you uh, behave and and the kind of measures you take is very different than if you're an 18 or a 19-year-old or a child where the risks uh, from COVID are are fairly minimal and are certainly not any greater than uh, when you're confronted with the flu. I think we should have had a much more uh, region-by-region approach in many parts of the world because, for example, I live in Kent, in England, and and the, and the risks of of uh, catching this uh, virus is not like uh, what it is if you're in London, you know, sitting in a in a, in a very busy 
restaurant or on the London Tube, where you, which, which are full of people. And I think that in a civilized world, you, you learn to take, uh, you make judgments and, and you use your discretion of how you react. And instead of a context-specific response to risk, we just basically said, we're not going to manage risk. You know, instead of, instead of seeing risk as something you balance, you merely see it as a danger that you've got to avoid at all costs. Yeah, and because, I mean, this virus, of course, one of its features is that it is quite deadly if you're in the older age group or if you have some comorbidity. So for the elderly and infirm, it's, there is a serious risk. And yet we don't seem to have taken enough care in protecting that group and not the others. I mean, here's an example, right? Early on in this pandemic, there was a raid in Sydney on, on Bondi Beach by the police because people were on the beach and they were apparently standing too close together. Well, well, two things there. I mean, almost everybody on that beach was under 40. And and secondly, that the risk of catching this disease in the open air is considerably yeah. smaller. And um, indeed, sunshine is said to kill the virus. So there was this huge attention on clearing people off Bondi Beach, none of whom seemed to me were very, very likely at all to catch the virus, or even if they did, they would have a pretty mild experience of it but at the same time elsewhere in the world we've allowed this thing to rip through nursing homes and where the elderly are so we've not balanced we've not we've not taken as sort of, we've not costed the risk and taken a rational approach it seems to me yes i think a lot of this is about impression management uh, where officialdom wants to be seen to be doing something and uh, reacting to these big public events or making very uh, bold statements that we're going to be very tough on people who break the quarantine seems to be a preferred way of dealing with this rather than saying, well, look, the old people need our help. They're going to be the priority. We're going to do everything possible to test them, to keep them safe. Instead of doing uh, a very targeted approach, what we have is is essentially uh, a kind of impression management uh, sort of policymaking where government officials are really worried about uh, the media's reaction to their behaviour far more than to the health risks caused by the pandemic. You're a resident of the United Kingdom, uh, very high instance of the COVID-19 virus there, 669, I think, are the latest count deaths per million. And yet you're able to travel from Britain, from Kent, to your um, your secondary residence in, in Lake Como in Italy. Here in Australia... We've been spared the worst of this, and yet I, I can't now travel from here to Melbourne. It's, it's just something out of kilter about that, I sense. I think there is. I, I think what happens is that uh, there's a panic-like reaction to local outbreaks, and there's an assumption that somehow, unless you have a very rigid quarantine regime, uh, the problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. As a result of what you have are policies that are totally inconsistent. Um, and, and, and very much have an arbitrary element to that, which basically means that um, uh, the kind of nuanced approach which we need to get the balance right between our health needs and the needs of society and the economy are never really t- uh, confronted in any kind of educated, mature way. And we often end up, as a result of that, artificially counterposing the economy to saving lives, not realizing that the economy is part of our life. You know, we live through our work. We live through the relationships we forge, you know, sort of in the, in the public area. Uh, and the, the idea that somehow we've got this life that we need to save 
as opposed to the economy is a mistaken way of understanding the way that humanity uh, needs to engage with its with, with the challenges that are posed to it. I mean, we've allowed the economy to be kind of become synonymous with corporate greed and all those sort of things. And of course, you know, in 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 a decision between saving a life and and, and making a rich person even richer, of course, nobody's going to go for the former. But the economy is not that, is it? It's about it's about jobs uh, and it's about prosperity and and jobs give meaning to people's lives. Without jobs, people become people's lives become seriously diminished. Um, do you think we need to learn to talk about it in in those terms? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to get away from seeing the economy and jobs through the prism of health and safety. It's, you know, you know, working is not a medical problem in the way that we begin to sort of experience it. We already uh, went down that road a long time before COVID nineteen when we talked about workplace stress workplace depression, the mental health problems are working, all the other you know, downsides of it. Now, I think we have to realize that actually work is one of the most creative dimensions of our everyday life. It's where we forge some of our, our most important relationships. It's essential for our survival. And instead of giving it a positive connotation, we created this uh, uh, problem of what's called the work life balance issue as if somehow life is there and work is there forgetting the fact that you know when you begin to balance the two you're in trouble because neither your life will be satisfactory nor will your work and i think that kind of culture uh, uh cultural denigration of working is something that western society needs to rethink again well to the to the uh, the subject of this podcast why borders matter why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries, your, your latest book. Why Borders Matter? So and this is a familiar theme. We, we know through the debate on Brexit in the UK in particular that this division between, if we like, globalists and territorialists has become quite a, a hot issue, those, those who defend the nation state and those who think we should be citizens of the world. But you take this whole thing to a new direction and take this idea of borders beyond uh, geographic or, or jurisdictional borders to borders in our everyday life, you know, the borders um, that, that give us values of borders in our, in, our, in, our, in our morality. Explain that a little bit better than I did. Well, uh, the book actually began because uh, I was asked to give a lecture in Holland to the Dutch Philosophy Society's conference on borders and when I accepted the invitation and started writing my lecture, I had no idea what was going to happen because on balance, I'm a fairly open-minded person towards borders. I think that usually migration has a positive outcome. Uh, so I'm not, again, you know, I'm not a big believer in controlling people's movements. I, I think the freedom of movement is quite important. But as I started doing research on it, I realized that there's a growing body of opinion that regards borders, any kind of borders, uh, in a very negative light. That they argue that borders are violent, border, uh, borders are discriminatory, borders are racist. That's where exploitation occurs, and therefore everybody boasts about the fact that they believe in a world without borders. So you have médecins sans frontières, doctors without borders. And if you Google and you, and you put in without borders, borders, you will find sex workers without borders. You'll find clowns without borders. You'll find engineers without borders. Everybody 
assumes that being against borders is a virtuous moral accomplishment. So when I began to look at that, I realized that actually the same people that are uh, estranged from national borders, the borders between nations, are also against the border or are, are unable to draw the line between uh, children and adults. The boundary between the generations is something they find very uncomfortable. They also find the boundary between men and women uh, as wrong, that somehow we, we don't just simply have two sexes, but there are a lot, lot more of them, a lot more genders in between. They will say that the border between the public and the private space should be eroded. It's artificial. We shouldn't have that. They argue now that uh, we're too insistent on drawing a line between humans and animals and that we have a lot in common and we should rethink this kind of distinction. And then you begin to realize that there's a kind of uh, dynamic at place in, in Western culture, which is unable to uphold the, the kind of boundaries, the symbolic boundaries and the lines that has given meaning to people's lives for centuries. That somehow all that kind of sensibility is unraveling. And that's why I wrote the book, because uh, I became very worried about the fact that if we unravel boundaries and forget the art of drawing lines, we do become disoriented as a society. We do begin to lose our way. And uh, in particular, where we end up, and this is the basic argument in the book, lose the capacity to draw moral boundaries, to make judgments about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. Let's go to the first of those things you mentioned, the boundaries between adults and children. You talk about this, uh, this phenomena, the infantilization of adults, and at the same time, the adultification of children. I really um, was drawn to that paradox, particularly I mean, when you talk of the adultification of children, I always think of Greta Thunberg. Well, I think what we're doing is we're uh, getting involved in what I call socialization in, in reverse, where in the old days, adults were expected to bring their children up and impart their wisdom to them, to uh, get them to understand the values that they should live by. And that was the role of a father and a mother. That was the, the role of all adults, in fact. That was the role of teachers and adult society in general. Whereas now, a lot of adults have become estranged from the legacy that they were born into. And they become very incompetent or unwilling to impart that to young people. And in fact, very often people say that young people are more sensitive than adults. Young people are more intelligent than adults. Whenever you watch a film on Netflix and you, you see the characters, the children are always emotionally much more aware than their parents. Uh, and I think what this leads to is you get to someone like Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, and everybody's saying, oh, it's really good the children have gone on strike. The children are telling us what to do. You know, the children have this wisdom, this kind of innocent wisdom that us adults like, and it's almost like a kind of, you know, the flattery of uh, being young. So just because you're young, you're automatically meant to be more aware and more able to, as they say in America, read the room than old people are. And I think this is a very unfortunate development because what we're doing is in an irresponsible way, we're passing the buck and, you know, for the future of the world. We're taking no responsibility for how we deal with the problems of our time and instead say, well, come on, Greta, you tell us what to do. And the idealization of young people 
uh, I think is just you know uh, a statement about how a lot of adults have simply lost the plot altogether, not realizing that they have a very big job to do in bringing these children up, inspiring them, and giving them guidance. And this doesn't help young people. On the surface, it seems to empower them. It seems to put them in a, a position of great privilege. But it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting because uh, one of the main arguments in the book relates to the fact that uh, one reason why you need a boundary between adults and children is because as kids develop, they need boundaries to kick against. You know, the way you develop and develop your independence and your strength is having to fight back and kick up a fuss. And there's a kind of generational tension, which is actually quite healthy, that develops. But how can young people genuinely rebel when every door is open? So when they kick up against a door, it's already open. You know, there's nothing to rebel against. And and one of the re- one of the consequences of that is that they take a very long time to grow up so that the transitional period between childhood and adolescence has extended. And even more, the, uh, the, the, the span of time between adolescence and becoming a mature adult has become longer and longer and longer. And one of the consequences of this is that uh, kids grow up without boundaries. They, they, they realize that they do need boundaries. I mean, human beings need meaningful boundaries. Otherwise, they feel entirely lost. And what has happened in the recent period is that the new generation of young people and and also people in their 20s have responded to the absence of boundaries by artificially creating their own new boundaries. And in many ways, the safe space that people are talking about can be seen as their attempt to build their own little world, their own little boundary. Um, And in many, and it's quite interesting, the point I've been arguing in Europe that the safe space movement actually anticipates the demand for social distancing and quarantine during the COVID period, uh, which is one of the reasons why so many people are so reluctant to leave their home and are feeling really great, you know, very, very happy uh, being in a lockdown because uh, of their previous attachment to their personal boundaries and their safe spaces. Uh, this social distancing idea, it does allow you to sit in a, a, a sort of cocooned world where you only engage with people with whom you feel comfortable and you, you shut you, there's no chance of or less chance at any rate of a, a unfortunate encounter with somebody who holds a different opinion um yeah. that's not good in the long run i wouldn't have thought well it kind of reinforces the polarization of public space and in many respects if you look at the um, political strife that has broken up particularly in the united states uh, with, the, with the new uh, phase of the Black Lives Movement and the hysterical reactions against statues, against uh, people who have different points of views. I think the pandemic has very much accelerated that trend uh, towards uh, living in your bubble and talking only to people that are just like you. And what has happened in the last three or four months is that the psychic distance between different groups and different identities has become much more rigid and dialogue and grown-up discussion uh, becomes more and more well, up, has become impossible. Certainly in the United States, and I would argue even in the United Kingdom. It's like you know the kind of changes that have been occurring the last ten years have been there on steroids. You know, suddenly 
the cultural left, the progressive left, are off on a whole new plane, and we didn't see it coming. But you don't. So this is not unrelated, in your view, to the COVID nineteen crisis and the lockdown. Well, uh, the the trends that we're seeing were already in play a long time before uh, the COVID nineteen outbreak. I mean, they were already there. They were quite visible, tangible. But what has happened is that they suddenly accelerated, you know, and and gained momentum that's quite unprecedented in the cultural lives of, of Western nations. And it became a global phenomenon in a few weeks. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that all this thing just burst out, wasn't really confined to Minnesota, but suddenly the whole world became uh, engaged with it. And suddenly everything was being rethought. And it's interesting that whereas, in, whereas five years ago, these debates were taking place or were confined principally to universities and higher education. Today, they've kind of emigrated to the private sector, to the public sector, yeah, big business, sounding like social justice warriors on campuses. You have Hollywood, the cultural institution, they're all at it. So I think in that sense, it's, we're seeing a very major cultural uh, revolution occurring throughout the, well, essentially throughout the world. Yes, you're right. These trends have been coming for a long time. I mean, the idea that uh, a borderless world is some kind of um, paradise in which there's no conflict between people goes back a long way. I mean, um, uh, it's, it's certainly present after World War Two, isn't it? The reaction to the, the horrors of, of the Second World War is the idea we should have, you know, international entities. And you quote uh, in your book uh, John Lenin's Imagine, which I'd, I'd play, except the royalties are just astronomically high. So I'll read the words instead. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. You kick back against this idea and, and say something quite opposite, that a border both separates and uh, connects people. Explain that. That's right. Exactly. A border is both a door but also a bridge. And it gives meaning to people's lives because at the end of the way, the, the way that I know that I'm me and not you is by understanding there's a boundary between us. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And we become aware of who we are as Australians or as English people or as anybody in relation to the, the people who, we, who are not are unlike us. And in, in that sense, borders are important morally and psychologically. But more importantly, and this is something that uh, a lot of people don't understand, is that if we get rid of borders and we become one world, then we cease being citizens of a nation. We're no longer citizens of a society. We become, become subject of some kind of global world government where we have no possibility of holding anybody to account in the way we can in your community or in your nation. And that has the making of the most horrific totalitarian consequences. And it seems to me that a lot of people who believe in this global cosmopolitan fantasy are unaware of the corrosive and anti-democratic consequences of their project. Uh, this, is, this is key, I think. There's, there's the unaccountability of these international organisations. It seems to be just a natural consequence of something rising to that scale and Brexit I think was the realisation for a lot of people certainly in Britain uh, that that was true that you you can have 
a fairly democratic United Kingdom, in fact, a very democratic United Kingdom compared to the rest of the world. But as soon as it goes to European level, you're suddenly run by unaccountable bureaucrats who don't have to take much notice of the popular will. Yeah, it's a big problem. I mean, when you, when you think about it, the ancient Greeks in Athens were very lucky because they had a city-state. And it was in, in the context of a bounded city-state that democracy first emerges. And the very idea of rule of law, which emerges in Athens you know, thousands of years ago, required a, a, a boundary. In fact, law in the ancient Greek uh, is synonymous with the walls of the city. The, the same kind of expression are used to express both of them. Now, obviously, we can no longer go back to the city-state situation because we now have much larger nations. But that just tells us that we, even within a nation-state, we struggle to give democracy meaning because we have uh, the capacity for dialogue, debate, discussion, for holding our parliamentarians to account uh, is diminished the more distant they are from us. Uh, but nevertheless, at least there is a possibility of you and I playing the role of what we call a citizen, a genuine citizen, uh, not just merely uh, an individual with no, inf no potential influence whatsoever. But the minute you go beyond that, then you cease to have a, a political existence. You become merely a legal entity. And you let, it, what, what, what happens, is the point I make in the book, is, it, is that politics becomes juridified. It becomes process rather than politics. And that's something that has a destructive, corrosive effect on, on, on democratic life altogether. You spend a bit of time in the book talking about Donald Trump's wall and uh, his war with Mexico. And even before it was actually built, just the idea of the wall was seriously disturbing to people. Uh, but those same people who are troubled by this physical wall nonetheless are the ones who have been most enthusiastic in policing cultural boundaries. Yes, I mean, what's very interesting is that uh, the, the people that say, you know, the Trump's wall is, is horrific, it's racist, it's discriminatory, you know, it, it relies on policing and armies, have got no inhibitions about spending all their time policing the boundaries between different cultures. And there is a whole, you know, sort of army of cultural entrepreneurs who are busy seeing whether you are, you know, sort of saying the right words. They criticize if you're a white actor for playing uh, a black role. If you're a black actor, you're criticized for playing a, a white role. Just the other day, I think Scarlett Johansson was criticized for attempting to play a, a, the role of a trans woman. That's not allowed anymore. You know, if you, if you serve Mexican food and you're not Mexican restaurateur, then that's cultural appropriation. So there's never been a time that there's been so much, uh, so much jealousy and so much attempt to monopolize your culture and keep people out as now, very clearly drawing very rigid boundaries between identities and cultures. And yet the same people somehow have got very strong views about having a boundary between Mexico and America. It's a kind of interesting paradox. Uh, I call it the paradox of borders. And what that really means, we don't like your borders. We don't like traditional cultural borders, but we like the borders that we just invented yesterday. Yeah, your, your book is um, a, a treasure trove of paradoxes, if I can say that. Um, there, there's something in here, 
you know, hadn't occurred to me to, of course, till you uh, articulated it, but the border between the intimate, between our private lives and the public domain is quickly disappearing altogether, isn't it? Well, not just that, but if you if, if take political life, these days politicians are judged on their ability to um, display their emotions in public. We love politicians to talk about their mental health issues, about their sexual affairs, who admit that when they were teenagers, they smoked uh, dope. You know, we kind of have to reveal everything. And in a sense, politics has become this big reality TV show where you emote and you show how genuine you are. And we don't say, well, you know, I don't actually care uh, about so-and-so's emotional life, their internal concerns. I, I care about their policies. I care about how they carry their policies out. You know, I care about their public role. That's not how we judge politicians anymore. And at the same time that we uh, sort of uh, basically say that the personal is political, we also say that the private sphere is not an area that we particularly take seriously. And we're continually trying to erode the private, undermine it. We talk about the family living their private lives as, as, as somehow dark and potentially dangerous. We talk about the need to open the doors to the private sphere so that we prevent people beating each other up, we prevent child abuse, because we cannot imagine that people living in a family, having a relationship, can be nice to each other. I mean, when, when was the last time you saw a film on Netflix, for example, where there's a happy family life, where people are sensitive and good to each other? There's always something dark going on within the family, always something corrosive kind of going on. And we lost the capacity to imagine that, that our private life could be nice and intimate and uh, providing us with the resources to make our way in the world, we see it as a potential battleground where the government needs to intervene and, and, and keep an eye on. The Black Lives Matter movement, which you mentioned earlier, I mean, part of their agenda is, is expressly to break down the nuclear family. This is, I find, quite unsettling. I think that uh, it, this has been in the offing for a very long time. I mean, as a sociologist, one of the things that I do, I keep a track on what people write about the family. And something very important happened in the 1950s. Until the 1950s, most writings on the subject of the family were concerned with keeping the family intact. You know, they were worried about divorce. They were worried about uh, the, the, the fact that generations were coming uh, into conflict with each other. They were worried about juvenile delinquency. And basically, their, their concern was, how do we make sure that the family remains a robust institution? And then from the 16th onwards, the position taken was the very opposite. Because almost every book, every article written by academics on the family criticizes it, calls into question, talks about the fact that the family has never been as good as it was made out to be in the past, and that the family messes up children. It's really bad for women. It's a place of patriarchal violence. And therefore, their concern was, how do we limit the role of the family? How do we police the family? How do we take out of the hands of the parents the role of bringing up children? You know, what kind of institutions can take responsibility for the affairs of family uh, because we don't trust the family? And I think that that has come about mainly because in Western society, as we become uh, less and less capable of taking seriously the values that made 
our culture what it is, we've also have lost the capacity to um, have confidence in one another as human beings. We become very suspicious of each other. And we think that uh, relationships between people need to be supplemented by micromanaging us, either through the institutionalization of process or by having government agencies uh, that kind of look after our lives and, 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 and take the burden and responsibility of child rearing from us and giving it to professionals. Recently in these podcasts, when we're inevitably looking at the ever mutating crisis we're in right now from the medical crisis, economic crisis, cultural crisis. I always like to find a redemptive note on which to end. So let's have a go, Frank. Let me suggest that there will necessarily be a renewed emphasis on national borders as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. I hope you're right. Uh, I think the same issues have emerged other parts of the world. Uh, in, In the UK, for example, People have realized that Huawei you know, isn't just like another company. And if you're going to rely on Huawei to bring in 5G, then you're writing a lot of potential problems. Uh, although it has to be said, while well, the UK realizes that, it, it kind of has invited China to more or less run its nuclear energy program and hasn't really woken up to the fact that if you're worried about security, um, the nuclear uh, sector, nuclear industry is certainly... Uh, not immune from security considerations. But I, I think the issue that you raise, the really important issue that you raise, is that whether we like it or not, if we're going to have proper borders, we also have to re-engineer our industries. You know, we cannot let technological development you know, sort of be left to other nations, other people, because the West has more or less has given up on investing in new technology and, and making sure that it's productive. Uh, it's, it's a large... China in particular, to become the technological motorhouse of the world. And if you go down that road and you turn yourself into a tourist paradise rather than a technologically uh, sort of robust sector, then you are going to have some very big problems in the future. And I hope that more and more people do realize that. Uh, I think the Brexit experience uh, indicates that people understand that there needs to be uh, some ways of marking off their nation from the rest of the world both for economic, but also because there are powerful moral reasons for that, which is why I am still quite optimistic, despite the big cultural and moral battles that confront us in the years ahead. Well, uh, let me encourage you by saying this this microphone, as I'm talking into, you can see on our video link, which we're recording this, if you could see on the back there, it would say Made in Australia. This is an Aust- Australian-built... Well, uh- podcast microphone from the road company who are world leaders in this technology so i feel very positive about Good for some... you <laughs> look frank great to talk to you and um we don't need another book to have an excuse to talk to you you're always welcome here to help us make sense of this weird modern world thank you frank pleasure take care You've been listening to the MRC podcast number 38 with our special guest, Frank Faridi, the author of Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. And you could be one of the growing number of people who make these podcasts possible by becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month on menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Thank you.